and welcome to the AK-47 podcast, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I'm going to be reading part six of Kolontai's The Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman. So if you have been listening to this series, you will know that in the last episode, we found Alexandra Kolontai in jail. She had been abroad before the July days, which was a kind of failed Bolshevik uprising in the summer of 1917. And she decided to go back to Russia and she was promptly arrested at the border by the same young officer who had in fact welcomed her uh, a little bit earlier that year. So now we're actually getting into these months uh, right before and immediately after the revolution, the October Revolution in 1917. This is a very exciting part of the memoir and it gives us kind of a first-hand account of what was happening in Russia, particularly in St. Petersburg or Petrograd as it became called, um, in 1917 at the time of these momentous events. I was forced to wait for the course of the investigation, like the other Bolsheviks, in a Petrograd prison, in strict isolation. The more incredibly the regime conducted itself towards the Bolsheviks, the more their influence grew. The march of the white general Kornilov on Petrograd strengthened the most radical elements of the revolution. The people demanded that the jailed Bolsheviks be freed. Kerensky, however, refused to free me, And it was only by an order of the Soviet that I was released from jail upon payment of my bail. But already the next day, Kerensky's decree that I be placed under house arrest hung over me. Nevertheless, I was given my full freedom of movement one month before the decisive struggle, the October Revolution in 1917. Again, my work piled up. Now the groundwork was to be set for a systematic women workers movement. The first conference of women workers was to be called. It took place and it coincided with the overthrow of the provisional government and the establishment of the Soviet Republic. So just a quick note here, Kornilov was a white general, a counter-revolutionary, who also tried to overthrow the provisional government. And so after Kornilov's failed coup attempt, that actually increased the strength and power of the Bolsheviks. Back to Kolontai. At that time, I was a member of the highest party body, the Central Committee, and I voted for the policy of armed uprising. I was also a member of different party representations in decisive congresses and state institutions, the preliminary parliament, the democratic congresses, etc. Then came the great days of the October Revolution. Smolny became historic. The sleepless nights, the permanent sessions, and finally the stirring declarations. The Soviets take power. The Soviets address an appeal to the people of the world to put an end to the war. The land is socialized and belongs to the peasants. The Soviet government was formed. I was appointed People's Commissar, Minister of Social Welfare, and I was the only woman in the cabinet and the first woman in history who had ever been recognized as a member of a government. And when one recalls the first months of the workers' government, months which were so rich in magnificent illusions, plans, ardent initiatives to improve life, to organize the world anew, months of the real romanticism of the revolution, one would in fact like to write about all else save about oneself. I occupied the post of Minister of Social Welfare from October of 1917 to March of 1918. It was not without opposition that I was received by the former officials of the ministry. 
Most of them sabotaged us openly and simply did not show up for work. But precisely this office could not interrupt its work, come what may, since in and of itself it was an extraordinarily complicated operation. It included the whole welfare program for the war disabled, hence for hundreds of thousands of crippled soldiers and officers, the pension system in general, foundling homes, homes for the aged, orphanages, hospitals for the needy, the workshops making artificial limbs, and the administration of playing card factories. The manufacturer of playing cards was a state monopoly. The educational system, clinical hospitals for women. In addition, a whole series of educational institutes for young girls were also under the direction of this ministry. One can easily imagine the enormous demands these tasks made upon a small group of people who, at the same time, were novices in state administration. In a clear awareness of these difficulties, I formed, immediately, an auxiliary council in which experts such as physicians, jurists, pedagogues were represented alongside the workers and the minor officials of the ministry. The sacrifice, the energy with which the minor employees bore the burden of this difficult task was truly exemplary. It was not only a matter of keeping the work of the ministry going, but also of initiating reforms and improvements. New, fresh forces replaced the sabotaging officers of the old regime. A new life stirred in the offices of the formerly highly conservative ministry. Days of grueling work. And at night, the sessions of the councils of the People's Commissar and of the Cabinet under Lenin's chairmanship. A small, modest room and only one secretary who recorded the resolutions which changed Russia's life to its bottommost foundation. My first act as People's Commissar was to compensate a small peasant for his requisitioned horse. Actually, by no stretch of the imagination did this belong to the functions of my office but the man was determined to receive compensation for his horse. He had traveled from his distant village to the capital and had knocked patiently on the doors of all the ministries, always to no result. Then the Bolshevik revolution broke out. The man had heard that the Bolsheviks were in favor of the workers and the peasants. So he went to the Smolny Institute, to Lenin, who had to pay out the compensation. I do not know how the conversation between Lenin and the small peasant went. As a result of it, however, the man came to me with a small page torn from Lenin's notebook on which I was requested to settle the matter somehow since at the moment the People's Commissariat for Social Welfare had the greatest amount of cash at its disposal. The small peasant received his compensation. My main work as People's Commissar consisted in the following. By decree to improve the situation of the war disabled to abolish religious instruction in the schools for young girls which were under the ministry. This was still before the general separation of church and state. And to transfer priests to the civil service, to introduce the right of self-administration for pupils in the schools for girls, to reorganize the former orphanages into government children's homes. No distinction was to be made between orphaned children and those who still had fathers and mothers to set up the first hostels for the needy and street urchins, to convene a committee composed only of doctors, which was to be commissioned to elaborate the free public health system for the whole country. In my opinion, the most important accomplishment of the People's Commissariat, however, was the legal foundation of a central office for maternity and infant welfare. The draft of the bill relating to this central office was signed by me in January of 1918. 
a second decree followed in which I changed all maternity hospitals into free homes for maternity and infant care in order thereby to set the groundwork for a comprehensive government system of prenatal care. I was greatly assisted in coping with these tasks by Dr. Korolov. We also planned a prenatal care palace, a model home with an exhibition room in which courses for mothers would be held and, among other things, model day nurseries were also to be established. We were just about completing preparations for such a facility in the building of a girls' boarding school at which formerly young girls of the nobility had been educated and which was still under the direction of a countess when a fire destroyed our work, which had hardly begun. Had the fire been set deliberately? I was dragged out of bed in the middle of the night. I was rushed to the scene of the fire. The beautiful exhibition room was totally ruined, as were all of the other rooms. Only the huge nameplate, prenatal care palace, still hung over the entrance door. My efforts to nationalize maternity and infant care set off a new wave of insane attacks against me. All kinds of lies were related about the nationalization of women, about my legislative proposals which assertedly ordained that little girls of 12 were to become mothers. A special fury gripped the religious followers of the old regime when, on my own authority, the cabinet later criticized me for this action, I transformed the famous Alexander Nevsky Monastery into a home for war invalids. The monks resisted and a shooting fray ensued. The press again raised a loud hue and cry against me. The church organized street demonstrations against my action, which also promoted anathema against me. I received countless threatening letters, but I never requested military protection. I always went out alone, unarmed, and without any kind of bodyguard. In fact, I never gave a thought to any kind of danger, being all too engrossed in matters of an urgently different character. In February of 1918, a first state delegation of the Soviets was sent to Sweden in order to clarify different economic and political questions. As people's commissar, I headed this delegation, but our vessel was shipwrecked. We were saved by landing on the Åland Islands, which belonged to Finland. At this very time, the struggle between the whites and the reds in the country had reached its most crucial moment, and the German army was also making ready to wage war against Finland. The white troops occupied the Åland Islands on the very evening of our shipwreck, as we were seated at dinner in an inn, rejoicing over our rescue. We managed to escape thanks to the greatest determination and cunning, yet one of our group, a young Finn, was captured and shot. We returned to Petrograd, where the evacuation of the capital was being prepared with feverish haste. German troops already stood before the gates of the city. Now began a dark time of my life, which I cannot treat here since the events are still too fresh in my mind. But the day will also come when I will give an account of them. There were differences of opinion in the party. I resigned from my post as people's commissar on the ground of total disagreement with the current policy. Little by little, I was also relieved of all my other tasks. I also gave lectures and espoused my ideas on the new woman and the new morality. The revolution was in full swing. The struggle was becoming increasingly irreconcilable and bloodier. 
Much of what was happening did not fit in with my outlook. But after all, there was still the unfinished task, women's liberation. Women, of course, had received all rights, but in practice, of course, they still lived under the old yoke, without authority in family life, enslaved by a thousand menial household chores, bearing the whole burden of maternity, even the material cares, because many women now found life alone as a result of the war and other circumstances. In the autumn of 1916, when I devoted all my energies to drawing up systematic guidelines for the liberation of working women in all areas, I found a valuable support in the first president of the Soviets, Sverdlov, now dead. Thus, the first Congress of Women Workers and Women Peasants could be called as early as 1918. Some 1,147 delegates were present. Thus, the foundation was laid for methodical work in the whole country for the liberation of the women of the working and the peasant classes. A flood of new work was waiting for me. The question now was one of drawing women into the people's kitchens and of educating them to devote their energies to children's homes and daycare centers, the school system, household reforms, and still many other pressing matters. The main thrust of all this activity was to implement, in fact, equal rights for women as a labor unit in the national economy and as a citizen in the political sphere. And of course, with the special proviso, maternity was to be appraised as a social function and therefore protected and provided for by the state. State institutions for prenatal care also flourished then. At the same time, central officers were established in the whole country to deal with issues and tasks connected with women's liberation and to draw women into Soviet work. So I'm going to stop right there for this episode, and I'm going to carry on reading the rest of this memoir. I think it'll probably take about two more, maybe three more episodes to get to the end. But I think it's really important, again, to emphasize here that Kolontai was in an incredible position of power but that she also used that power to try to hold the Bolsheviks accountable. She did join, as I've mentioned in other episodes previous to this one, the left opposition. She was very much opposed to the kind of centralization that Lenin implemented in the early years of the Soviet Union. She really did believe that there should be something like worker self-management or that the Soviets should have more power. She was definitely more what we would think of in the United States as an anarchist in this respect at this particular moment in time, which is kind of ironic because, of course, at the same time that she's sort of promoting worker self-management, she's also centralizing uh, the family. She's basically trying to socialize all of the aspects of child rearing and child caring and child um, welfare, as well as, you know, the, the care for the elderly and the infirm and the war disabled. She's trying to do this all in this very centralized socialist way by allowing the state to recognize that particularly maternity and, and child rearing is a social function and therefore deserves the support of, ta of tax revenue, des deserves the support of the state. Um, but as she says in this piece, of course, she is relieved of her duties quite soon because of her opposition. And, you know, by 1923, she's actually being sent abroad as a diplomat to get her out of Petrograd, to get her away from the centers of Soviet power. 
But it's a really interesting, certainly interesting moment of time for Colin Tai, and I do think that this part of her memoir really shows that not only did she have incredible impact in these early years of the Soviet Revolution, of the, of the changes that were happening in Soviet society, but she also was really very much truly still committed to women's liberation, something that I think a lot of people forget. All right. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Kristen Godsey. This is AK47, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kollontai. Stay tuned for my next episode and keep up the good fight. <laughs>